Thanks be to God that to Jesus is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. I'm going to talk a little bit about that kingdom and that glory today. Brethren, if you'd open your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you would stand together with me. I'm going to read verse 1 through 11. We're going to be focusing today actually just on one key verse here. One verse, verse 8, but I would like to again read this passage in its context. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 here. Receive and believe the word of the Lord. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you will take these words and that today you will begin to teach us how to fight the good fight of faith. Father, we believe that you have called us to wage the warfare in your name. You have called us to go forth as you did to your people of old under Joshua to be strong and courageous, knowing that the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, knowing that the giants in the land, though they are certainly there, they will tremble and fall behind and before the face of the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord of hosts and his people. When we come waging the weapons of the warfare, you have given us even the word and prayer. So, Father, today we pray that you would kindle afresh in us the beginnings of real hope, of real joy, and a real courage and that we would fear nothing but God alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. Well, I said we're going to be focusing on verse 8 today. I'm going to read that particular verse again. <clears throat> Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, we in the Reformed world, I don't know about you, but back in the day, when I would have read a text like this, you know, to 
resist the devil, to concern myself with the devil. I came from a church tradition in a context you know, in which we had seen so many of the abuses of this sort of thing on TVN and other places on cable news that we had come to embrace what amounted to a, a de facto rationalism. All we needed to fight the good fight of faith is to have the Word of God in our Westminster Confession, which we need those things, brethren. We need truth. Truth is that which sets men free. We dare not fight without it, but brothers and sisters, we need... It's been a long journey for me, uh, and the Lord has been working in me to help me not only read words like this on the page or read words like we read in Ephesians 6 earlier about our warfare not being with flesh and blood primarily, fundamentally, but with principalities, powers, dominions, strongholds, and so on. And to not see that as just a bunch of charismatic fanaticism. I remind myself, you, you all, and this probably dates me a bit, but that's okay. Uh, you know I, I love uh, old, old Christian music. Uh, and one of the favorites of mine, as I know many viewers, was Keith Green. Well, Keith had a song uh, which I thought was extraordinarily prescient with regard to this topic today. And, and the song, he subtitled Satan's Boast, but the title of it was called No One Believes in Me Anymore. Let me, let me read you the words to this, because I think this is, this is very prescient. Oh, my job keeps getting easier as time keeps slipping away. I can imitate your brightest light and make your night look just like day. I put some truth in every lie to tickle itching ears. You know, I'm drawing people just like flies because they like what they hear. I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting very simple now because no one believes in me anymore. Oh, heaven's just a state of mind. My books read on your shelf. And have you heard that one that God is dead? I, I made that one up myself. They dabble in magic spells. They get their fortunes read. You know, they heard the truth but turned away and followed me instead. I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. You know, no one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. Everyone likes a winner. With my help, you're guaranteed to win. And hey, man, you ain't no sinner. You got the truth within. And as your life slips by, you believe the lie that you did it on your own. But don't worry. I'll be there to help you share our dark eternal home. Oh, my job just keeps getting easier as day slips into day. The magazines, the newspapers, and our day the internet print every word I say. This world is just my spinning top. It's all like a child's play. You know, I dream that it will never stop, but I know it's not that way. Still, my work goes on and on and always stronger than before. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to make it dark before the dawn since no one believes in me anymore. I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. You know, no one watches for my tricks, since no one believes in me anymore. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you today that we here at this congregation, whether we realize it or not, we have experienced the kind of plundering of which Keith talks about. And a lot of it has been, and I put myself here at the forefront of, of, of a, a large spiritual ignorance, as well as in many cases apathy on my part and other, uh, just, just to fight, to engage with what the Bible says is going on in the unseen realm behind what we see in the scene. 
There is the world and there is the flesh. Make no mistake about it. Brothers and sisters, there is the reality of the devil. There is the reality of the demonic, and the devil is not, as we know, just a, a man with a, a red cape and a pitchfork. He is a dastardly, demonic accuser, a diabolos, diabolical one, and he is opposed to the brethren and the demonic hordes that follow him and his army. We are in a fight, brethren, in case you haven't noticed it. The normal state of affairs between the church and Satan is supposed to be war, all-out war. I'm reminded of a, a quote by General Patton. I read, read this recently. General Patton, you know, back during World War II, uh, he had a bunch of new recruits, and he, he gave them these words when he first spoke to them. He said, Welcome to Europe, men, and to the war. I am sure that some high-ranking jerk back in the United States has told you that the secret to winning the war is to die for your country. That is not so. The secret to winning the war is to make the enemy die for his country. The same principle holds true today. It's all right to lose graciously, brethren, once or twice. We're going to have losses in particular battles. But brethren, if the gospel is to be taken seriously in our day in the church and through the church to the world and to the ends of the earth, then we had better begin to win graciously, which means we had better begin to understand the true contours of the battle and who our enemy really is. So to that end, I invite you to look with me today. Just to recap, remind you how we got here at verse 8. In verse 1 to 7, what Peter has been doing is laying out what, I, what I've called the dynamics of a healthy and victorious church, an overcoming church. I remind you that this church to which Peter is writing, the Jewish church Jerusalem, is already actively under persecution. The things of which we're going to see that the, the lion, the devil like a lion going about roaring, seeking whom they may devour, those weren't hypothetical. There were already sheep being devoured. There was blood spiritually already evident on the edge of the sheepfold in the perimeter of God's camp. Peter is not writing a nice theological treatise. He is writing a wartime manifesto here. He knows of what he speaks. And what he said to them in this context is that to be an overcoming church in the face of persecution. And brethren, I shouldn't have to tell you this, but look around. It's coming. It's coming. Part of my call, as Peter said to the church, he says, to you elders I exhort you, who am a fellow elder, that you are to shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ which is in your midst. You, you, you do what Jesus does in Psalm 23. You provide for them. You lead them into pastures, green pastures and still waters. You restore their soul. You anoint their head with oil. You prepare tables for them in the presence of their enemies. You make sure that you are the one who tangibly through Jesus is, is indicative that surely goodness and mercy is following them all the days of their life. And you do that with humility. You do that with earnestness because you're going to give an account, Steve Morris, to the chief shepherd among whom I'm an under-shepherd. So the first dynamic is that I, we have a, a, a pastor who by God's grace alone understands that this is a calling, it's a burden, it's something he's placed on me, not of compulsion, not for dishonest gain, but willingly, not to lord it over you like a despot, 
but as an example, but he's put it on me, and therefore, by God's grace, not as a hireling, we will stay the post. That's the first component. Secondly, in verse 5, he made the point that part of that then is that you youngers submitting yourselves, following your, your elders in, in good faith. Striving to, as we looked in Hebrews chapter 13, you know, obey them that rule over you to honor them, to pray for them. They're imperfect men. They have weaknesses, and those weaknesses in your pastors tend to become weaknesses in the church. God's ways are covenantal. As things go in those in charge, they tend to trickle down. I'm very much aware of that reality. So I understand the earnestness of, by God's grace, me being pure, of staying pure, of keeping my eyes on Jesus, because my sins will tend to affect all of you. Praise God that also my example will tend to infect and affect all of you as well. And I thank God for that. But then he goes on and he says that there is a vertical right relationship. Elders who lead humility as Christ. Those who follow with humility as unto Christ. And he says all of you be submissive one to another. There's a horizontal. And he says specifically there that you be clothed with humility. There's the key. Remember, we talked about the servant's garb. That word be clothed has the idea of the servant's garb. It's only used once in the New Testament of the one who takes on the garb that distinctively was that of a house servant and slave. You be clothed with that, Peter says. And remember that having an attitude of clothing with humility, the opposite of pride, because why? God is going to resist those who are proud in their own conceits. Take it to the bank. He's going to put that up and say, no more. I will thwart your efforts. I will put roadblocks in your way. I will curse your attempts if you are proud. But on contrast, if you are humble, if you are dependent on the Lord and abiding in Him, knowing that apart from Christ I can do nothing, but also knowing that in him I can do all things to him who strengthens me. When yours, humility that's coming out one towards another, he says that God gives grace, favor, blessing to them. He pours out mercy and goodness on them from on high. He opens doors that no man can shut. He has the keys of the kingdom of David, and he can do that. And he goes before his army of the Lord as a victorious army, and he goes when we are set about his kingdom and right, his righteousness and the good of his church and through his church to the world. Jesus is going to bless that. And he tells us that as we do so in the midst of persecution, brethren, you do that by casting all your cares upon him. Throw them, that's what the word means. Ekbalo, throw, cast them upon him. He can bear the weight of our cares and your burdens, brethren, day by day, for he cares for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we are going to be more than conquerors if you know that he cares for you. He will never leave and forsake you. But then that brings us to the text today. And what he tells us here, number one, is this. It reminds us of our adversary. And the adversary, and this is verse 8b, he refers to them there as our adversary, the devil who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who is this devil? The Bible refers to him spiritually, he said here, as the adversary of the true sons of God, of the true church of God, kingdom of Christ. He's referred to as the God, the spirit of this age, of this world, the prince of the power of the air, who now 
works effectually to ensnare and captivate the sons of disobedience among whom you and I once were. The thief who comes like a wolf to steal, to kill, to destroy, lie, deceive the flock of Jesus Christ. Now legally and judicially, remember we see examples of Satan, the adversary, in God's heavenly courtroom in the heavenlies where he was accuser, kind of like a plaintiff in a a court trial against the brethren, pleading our sins uh, at the throne of God and saying, reminding them like a, a prosecuting attorney of their sins, of my sins, and that there was legal ground he had, past tense, that he had on us. There was legal ground for God to judge us and condemn us and to give us over to his dominion and his condemnation, his doom. Think of Job. Remember Job 1 and 2. What do we see Satan as the accuser doing there, standing in the heavenly throne room, accusing Job? He's not what you think he is. Job's got sins. Yeah, he's blameless, but I know him. He's not strong. I'm gonna go, let me go prove it. Remember, the Lord actually did allow some. It was all under his sovereign hand. But Satan's the accuser. Think in Zechariah 3. We just read about that. There's Satan standing over the throne accusing Zechariah. And I assure you, Zechariah, like all of the remnant children of Israel who came back during the return from exile, they all had a lot of sin on them, a lot of defilement. Zechariah, the high priest, too. But you remember what it said there. He said that you take him, he has been pulled as a brand of the fire. I've clothed him in righteousness, put a turban on his head. Satan, be gone. No more accusations because this one is one that I have set apart. But that's what he does. He, he was the accuser of the brethren, the prosecuting attorney. He also has an executive role, like on earth. Again, he, he functioned as the general and the captain of the spiritual army of the host of evil, of the fallen spirits, the angelic had fallen, the demonic, and he was the legal ruler of the kingdoms of this world after the fall until the time of Christ. When Satan comes and tempts Jesus, you remember, in the wilderness, says, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kings in the world. At that point, those were, and after effect, his to give, right? As we're going to see later, in just a moment, Revelation says that they're not that way anymore. But they were. He was the God of this world and the kingdoms of this world and the captain of the army of the kingdoms of this world until Christ. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Revelation real quickly, Revelation eleven fifteen. As I said, that's not the case anymore, though, and we need to understand where we are presently as the Church of Jesus Christ in the cosmic, the cosmic, uh, geological, cosmological timeline. Revelation, you recall, it is our conviction, our belief, uh, rightly, that that Revelation. Uh, 1 to 19 speaks of things which have happened, which Jesus successfully did. I believe we're right now in Revelation 20, and that's an important thing, as we're going to see, because if you look at Revelation 11, 15, we'll start there. When the seventh trumpet sounded, that was the seventh judgment, trumpet of final judgment against apostate Israel in that covenant lawsuit to end the old covenant, when Jesus, the righteous judge from on high, brought forth and poured out his righteous indignation 
on unbelieving and apostate Israel and gave the kingdom to the Gentiles, to a nation bearing the fruit of it. It says this, The seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Skip ahead to chapter 12. Remember chapter 12, it talks about how there was the dragon in heaven, the woman there, and the sign she bore the male child, verse 5, who was to rule all nations and was caught up in his ascension. The woman flees into the wilderness. That faithful church, the Jewish church, fled into the wilderness from Jerusalem where God prepared a place. So what happens? War broke out in heaven. War broke out in heaven at that time. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. He's not in the heavenly courtroom anymore as that prosecuting attorney. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not loathe their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Brethren, it was right there during that short time that First Peter wrote this epistle. In the 60s A.D., right near the end, the devil had been cast down. He knew his time was short, having been cast out of the heavens. And brethren, he was like a roaring lion prowling, devouring, seeking to consume and destroy the last faithful rest vestige of the Jewish church, of those who had followed Jesus. That's what Peter's talking about. The accuser was cast down. Jesus' victorious life and death at the cross completed both his and our victory, and his resurrection categorically certified and guaranteed it. Jesus took up residence in the heavenlies. Satan was cast out of the heavenlies. The only thing now in the heavenly courtroom is the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's why the Satan has no place in there, because, brethren, there's no condemnation there in that courtroom for you and I who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has set you free. And if you've been washed with that blood, brothers and sisters, then no accusation against you will stick. Have you sinned? Sure you have. But brothers and sisters, when you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ in that heavenly courtroom cleanses you from all sin. Therefore, God is faithful and he is just to cleanse you and I from all sin and from all unrighteousness. He's just. Why is he just? Because Satan, the accuser, is gone, and the only thing in that heavenly courtroom is the blood of Jesus, whose wounds, fresh yet visible above, ever live to plead for you. Amen? That's why I have great hope. But it's not just that, that Satan and his demons were cast out, brothers and sisters. The Bible says that not only was Jesus enthroned in the heavenlies, but so too was his church. That's why it says, but you, God, who being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ, raised us up, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. you want to read about that? Skip ahead to Revelation 20. Go there real quick. Where are we now? Where are we now? 
When we left at Revelation 11 and 12, Satan had been cast to the earth and he was wreaking havoc, devouring, going forth to kill, destroy the Jewish church because he knew his time was brief. Where are we at now? Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit. This was at the end of the Old Covenant, the war in which Christ and his saints prevailed and they were saved from the, from the dragon's onslaught. Jesus laid hold of that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. After this, he must be released for a while. And then what happens? And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Brothers and sisters, those who participated in the first resurrection, they are reigning now in the heavenlies. You and I, the Bible says in Romans 5, are reigning here on earth with them. So not only is Jesus ruling and judging in the heavenlies, but so too is that innumerable cloud of witnesses with him. Brothers, Satan has been evicted, and the new tenant has come in and pushed him out. And now he himself, the captain of the armies of the, of, of the evil one, of the demonic hordes, he is locked up and it says that he has been bound, he's been limited. You may say, that's great, Steve. Why is it then that we still see so much issue in the world? Here's why, because while Satan has been bound and limited, brethren, it's kind of, kind of the analogy that I've heard, but which is very good. It, it really is kind of like, uh, picture this, it's kind of like when, you know, when the Allies land at Normandy, right? It's the beachhead that was established once the beachhead, D-Day, had come, Jesus led us in D-Day. He established the beachhead. From that point on, the war was effectively over. And not only that, but Jesus, to use the analogy, it says that the Allies have now also sacked Berlin. So now what you've got is the enemy who is on the run. They have lost their capital city. The enemies have made a beachhead, and yet they are engaged in guerrilla warfare to the end. And they are going to attack through sinister means, through devious means, with schemes, through fiery darts, because they know that Christ has won the victory and it's just a matter of time until the world is conquered, but they're not going to go quietly. Brothers and sisters, the reality of the demonic is still very much present with us today. And so Peter's words here should be, for us, something that caused us to pause. I believe where we are in the timeline right now, it is not the devil himself who directly, as it was here, who is the roaring lion, but brothers and sisters, make no make need about it. The armies of the devil are not going without a fight. And the things that are said here that these demonic spirits are doing now, he's, like I said, they are doing what it says. They are walking about. They are seeking whom they may devour like roaring lions. Let us not be complacent, brethren. It says walking about and seeking. The idea is that they're always going near and far, always attentive, vigilant in their quest to undermine, deceive, dominate, devour the saints of the living God. 
those lambs in the fold. They're always looking near the perimeter, looking to see, is there a stray lamb who is walking away from the good shepherd, who is walking outside of the covering of his righteous hand and his mighty hand? And I assure you, brethren, these wolves are on the perimeters and they are hungry and bloodthirsty and they are looking for sheep. I'm kind of reminded of that song. I'm going to give it here, but you remember, you heard that song by Nathan Clark George, The Devil Ain't Lazy? You heard that? Anybody here heard that? Okay. If you haven't, go listen to it again today. There's your homework. Nathan Clark George. That's exactly it. The demons, brethren, are not lazy. They're looking around, and, and the reality is, I think in many ways, they're far more active and engaged even in their inevitable defeat than the church is in prosecuting the righteous rule of Jesus in the earth. Like a roaring lion, their desire is to devour, to intimidate, to threaten, to assert supremacy, as if Satan and his kingdom were still kings of the hill, and his dominion still had power. They still threaten those things they look to and they devour because they're hungry, destroying. I assure you, they're not just interested in nibbling on a little sheep nugget. They're not wanting a little piece of sheep jerky, brethren. They're wanting mutton steaks. They're not just there to rough up the sheep. They're looking for carnage. They can always be recognized, these demonic influences, by their bloodlust to destroy and devour God's people and God's kingdom. Let me just give an aside here, and this is actually something related to the book I'm going to be asking the heads of households to read. But the question may come, say, if the enemy's goal is to devour the sheep. How does he go about doing that? How, how does he go about luring sheep to the perimeters outside of God's, outside of the protection, out from under God's protective mighty hand that Peter talked about, right? When you're under God's mighty hand, the idea is that it's a place of protection. It's a place where he's going to preserve you from the enemies of your soul, as you're clothed with humility, you'll be under his hand. You'll be protected. Mercy and goodness will follow you all the days of your life. You will be shielded from the Lord as a fortress. And he will exalt you because he's protecting you. When you are not clothed with humility, when you are proud, you are outside of his hand. You are exposed. So how does that happen? Number one, threefold strategy. The demons, the demonic strategy to devour the people of God begins with deception and then it goes on to domination and then to devouring or destruction. The first thing he does is deceive. One of the ways that the demon, demonic deceives the people of God is by covering holiness with other names. I've seen a lot of this. We Take what is biblical piety, for example. You know, the calls, not hypocrisy, not Phariseeism. Got no place for that. No place for arrogance. No place for theological or ethical hubris by which we focus on those specks in other people's eyes and miss our own. But nevertheless, the calls in the Scripture to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, to have nothing to do with the unprofitable works of darkness, but to expose them, to seek the Lord, draw near to Him, 
read these things we read earlier about praying at all times with all people for, for all things, and we think, you know, boy, that's, that, that sounds great, but that's just pie-in-the-sky piety. Come on now. Brethren, there is a way of being pious in a hypocritical, arrogant way. But don't buy the other lie that says piety, godliness, pursuing the Lord from a pure heart is pietism. Because that's what the Satan would have you to do, is to believe, you know what? If you pursue the Lord in truth and you love him and you want to be more like Christ, that just shows how arrogant you are and all you are really is somebody who sees, all you see is sticks in other people's eyes. Brethren, that is not true. but because I'm pursuing holiness, I sure will see the ones in my own eye by God's grace before I see yours. He also tends to persuade men that sins are just little, that they're insignificant. That, and in doing, he undermines the gospel. You know, it's not so bad. Hey, everybody does that, right? Sure, you've sinned, but let's be honest. We're all sinners. Well, that's true. Brothers and sisters, those who love the Lord in truth and love his gospel, there is no such thing as a small sin. But brothers and sisters, where sin abounded, grace will abound all the more. See, those who love the kingdom of God and love his gospel will see increasingly, and the older you get, the more you grow in grace, the more you are actually able to see how great that divide is. How great the bridge that the gospel covered for you and me, the blood of Christ, to bring me and draw near to me and me to him and you to him. Brothers and sisters, don't buy the lie that there's any such thing as a little sin, but also don't buy the other lie that the blood of Jesus in some way is insufficient or incapable of cleansing every sin, no matter how great or small. Brethren, I want you to understand how grave sin is, but I also want you to understand how great the gospel is and to believe it, live by it, day by day, moment by moment. You and I live by the grace of God alone. That's what keeps you from being hypocrites and arrogant. That's what keeps you humble. And lastly, Satan convinces us that, you know, sins can be repented of hereafter. You don't need to worry about it now. You can just sweep them under the rug or don't worry about it. No. Today is the day of salvation. If it's true that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness, if it's true that John says that we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Then, brethren, let not a day or a moment go by that you walk in the darkness for one second longer. Get yourself to the light. There you go. There's the application. That was easy, right? Get to the light. For everyone that practices evil, John 3 says, does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they are done in God. Brethren, I exhort you as your pastor, as one who loves you and is watching out for your souls, if there is any sin that you are harboring today that you know of that you have not made right with the Lord or with somebody else, Get it dealt with today. Come out of the darkness into the light so the blood of Jesus will cleanse you, that clean conscience, and so that you can have victory and courage and confidence in the Lord. Don't believe the lie any lo- anymore. Don't believe also what I'm going to say is called the theology of powerlessness. 
That's another deceit of, of the devil. He convinces us that, uh, you know, that at the end of the day, we're like POWs instead of spiritual Marines, right? Everything is so bad, and this is amazing. I, I, I continue to be amazed, brothers and sisters, at how many of us who call ourselves post-millennialists, how many of us who believe that, yes, Jesus, everything I said a minute ago, Jesus has already taken up rule and reigning in the saints with him, the church is inevitable, and we look around and we say, but things are so bad right now, so you know what, eventually it'll work out, eventually Christ will win, eventually, I'll leave that for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Besides, we're post-millennials. We know we've got a long, long time. But I don't need to die on hills. Really, I don't even need to get bloodied on those hills very much right now. I'm just going to sit at home and have a beer. Brothers and sisters, if we believe that Jesus has won, the necessary implication of that is that we must fight now. And we don't believe the lies of the devil that says that your prayers will do nothing. That if you set yourself to do my work, my way, you can't really expect my provision. Brethren, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not the Word of God speaking. That's the liar and deceiver who's speaking. Now maybe prayers haven't been answered at times because there are things in our camp Maybe it is because there's disunity amongst us. Maybe it's because there's impurities. Maybe it's like in Revelation. You know, I don't know. Jesus gets on the church. He chastises them for losing their first love, being so theologically heady, but losing their zeal for the Lord. Maybe it's because they're tolerating that woman Jezebel who teaches my people to corrupt themselves and, or, or the doctrines of Balaam and, and, and Balak or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Maybe there's false teaching. Maybe there's false conduct, or maybe there's arrogance. I don't know what it is, but when prayers aren't being answered, brethren, the response should not be from us, oh, well, God just doesn't will it right now. Maybe someday. I'm going to tell you, I did not stay here in Illinois to not fight. I have a burden for the city of Peoria, for Tazewell and Peoria counties, for the church there. And if I don't believe that Jesus is able and willing to work through us if we humble ourselves before him, then brethren, go home. Let's just go home. But I do believe that. We're going to talk more about that next week because we're going to look at verse 9 where he says resist him. And we're going to look at how to resist him. But today, I just want to then focus on two things, two attitudes. And with this, we close. I'll go real quick here, really. He just gets two attitudes here. Look in verse 8. Before next week, we look at how to resist the devil tactically. Here's the two attitudes we must have as we seek to thwart his deception and his consequent domination and tyranny over the church which ultimately then makes us fit as we become demoralized, apathetic, ignorant, divided with our brethren whom Jesus died for, both within the congregation as well as those brethren over there. We see Satan's strategy 
We see his, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are not ignorant of his schemes. I pray that's true for us, that we're not ignorant of his schemes. I pray that we can see that the fiery darts are flying and that we have the faith to raise that shield of faith, to be clothed with the armor of God about which we read earlier, both defensively with our head covered with the helmet of salvation, our girt abound with truth as a waistband, and our our feet closed with the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we also must learn to take up weapons of the sword of the Spirit spoken. It's interesting there in Ephesians 6, when he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, I've said this before, the word word there is rhema. It's not logos, it's not the grama, it's, it's, word. it's what Jesus did in the, the way we wield the sword of the Spirit, brethren, is what Jesus did in the wilderness. Satan comes. It's like, this is, this is Ephesians 6 on display. Just go read Matthew 4. There's Ephesians 6. Jesus resisting the fiery darts of the evil one with faith, the word of God, but then he taking the word of God as a sword and driving him back. It is written. It is written. Be gone, liar. It is written. Speaking, verbalizing, that's what Ramah means, the word of God. That's not just for charismatics, brethren. We reformed can believe and speak the word of God too as a sword. And I assure you, the enemy of our souls, though unseen, he hears you, and he will flee. James 4 says that. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Because, brethren, the authority you and I have in Christ is greater than the power of the enemy one. Greater is he who is in you than... Brethren, do you believe that? I didn't stay in Illinois to get my backside kicked. So, having said all that, he just gives two quick attitudes. I'm just going to say them. Look, look, it's very simple. What are the attitudes we need to have? Number one, it's very simple. Be sober-minded. Be sober and be vigilant. What is sober-mindedness? It's real simple. It's the idea of being, having your spiritual wits about you. It's the opposite of Ephesians 5. Be not drunk with wine, inebriated, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart always to the Lord. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Where have we heard that? Well, that's First Peter. <laughs> First Peter says the same thing, submitting one to another. That's how we are filled with the Spirit. That's how we're sober-minded. It's not being spiritually ignorant about the schemes of the devil, of his desire to, to uh, deceive, to dominate, and destroy. It means that we're watching and praying. We're looking with spiritual eyes, seeing where are we seeing the attacks of the evil one? Where are we seeing lies promulgated? Where are we seeing things that are not only untrue, but are even just irrational and defy logic? Where are we giving place to a hopeless spirit of apathy? Where are we seeing saints devoured by them and seeing their carcasses left there Whatever that is, we're going to learn how to resist next week. But one, be vigilant, be, be sober-minded, be aware. And number two, be vigilant. 
I'm just going to say it again, brothers and sisters, the only way forward for you and I is to have a wartime mentality. And I'm trying to figure out more and more what that means. Again, that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean that we go get in bunkers. <laughs> but I will tell you, it does mean for you and me, at least this, there are hills that we need to be prepared to get bloody on if need be for the sake of the gospel because we love, not because we hate, but because we love truth and we love people to speak, do truth and love. Because the truth is what's going to set people free, folks. The truth done and spoken in love. But brothers and sisters, you know, people say, are you willing to die on that hill? Well, maybe. But I also would tell you, why do we need to die on a hill? <laughs> I may shed a little bloodshed, but I believe Jesus is the king of the hill. Wouldn't it be great if we fight the good fight and we actually see the light begin to drive back some of the darkness? Wouldn't that be great, Steve? That'd be great. And yeah, but how are we going to overcome? And we'll close with Revelation 12, 11, where we started. They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, which cleanses my conscience. Baptism, Murray, right? With a clean conscience, the blood of the Lamb, no accusation against me stick, no condemnation. Walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship, the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even to death. Brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you today is simply this. The call for you and me is to fight the good fight of faith. And we need to figure out more and more how to do that. We're going to start next week when we talk about tactics of resistance in verse 9. But brethren, the kingdom of God and the joy and the treasure that is Jesus is worth living and dying for. It's worth having my name soiled if need be for. It's worth losing a few earthly comforts for. It's worth some battle scars for. Because brethren and sisters, Jesus is going to make everything right. I have a great confidence in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word which convicts my soul. And I ask in the name of Jesus, my ruling, reigning king and priest, I ask that you will give myself as the pastor shepherd of this church here presently and, and my, my brothers and sisters who are part, equally part of the army of the Lord, would you give us hearts that are vigilant, that are sober-minded, spiritually minded. Father, may it be of us that we do not downplay or make light of the reality of the demonic, the principalities, powers, things that are going on behind the flesh and blood, the things we see in the visible realm. May we understand that there are lost souls who are under the sway of the evil one and that our, our yearning would be to see the captives set free, so that the veil would come off of their faces, so that the gospel might be believed, so that light may get into their darkest of places as it has into ours. So Father, we ask that you would keep us pure, we ask that you would give us, as I said, sober-mindedness and vigilance as we go about our week, watching over the souls that have been trusted to us in our households, men to our wives, to our children, 
that we would keep close watch over their souls as those who will give an account, and that we would learn to pray and trust you and see you work to pour forth grace and mercy as we do so. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.